Hello, everybody. Welcome to the ATS Pomme Rehab Assembly podcast. I'm Dr. Enya Danes. I'm a clinical academic physiotherapist at the University Hospitals of Leicester in the UK and member of the ATS Pomme Rehab Assembly Web Committee. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Daniel Langer, Assistant Professor and Physiotherapist at the Department of Rehabilitation Sciences at KU Leuven. And today we're going to be discussing inspiratory muscle training, specifically as an adjunct to pulmonary rehabilitation, which has been an ongoing debate for many years. So, Daniel, if we start off by just giving a bit of a brief background on inspiratory muscle training. Yeah, um, so... um... The, the intervention is already used for uh, quite some time, actually decades already. Um, most of the evidence is available in patients with COPD and most of the studies that have been conducted have been conducted with uh, threshold loading devices that have been used uh, quite often uh, in the past. So there is quite um, a substantial body of evidence available, uh, but how the evidence should be interpreted, that's still <laughs> uh, quite intensely discussed. Mm-hmm. And I think we, if we just touch on the evidence, so there are obviously quite a, a few key pieces of evidence, aren't there, that um, I think you're referring to? Right. So there have been some systematic reviews published in the last couple of years. Uh, most of the evidence in pulmonary rehab is in patients with COPD. Um, And the most recent systematic review is from 2018. And basically we have to to distinguish between two different kinds of PICOs and comparison interventions and control uh, conditions that are compared in the systematic reviews. When the intervention is inspiratory muscle training and the control is either sham training or no intervention. So when the intervention is not combined with a with a full pulmonary rehab or an, or an aerobic exercise training program, then the evidence is quite clear that as a standalone intervention, IMT improves respiratory muscle function, so strength and endurance, but also has an impact on symptoms of exertional dyspnea and also improves functional exercise capacity. And the gains in functional exercise capacity are actually uh, almost to a clinically relevant degree Right, these systematic reviews report between 35 40 meters increase in six minute walking distance, uh, which is also found, by the way, in, in um, systematic reviews that study this intervention in, for example, chronic heart failure patients. And then the other, the second part is, of course, when the intervention is compared or combined with an aerobic training intervention and the control group receives only. Uh, physical training not combined with inspiratory muscle training, then the conclusion is that adding respiratory muscle training um, results in additional gains in respiratory muscle function, so strength and endurance, but how it translates into other clinical outcomes is not really clear at the the moment. And so clearly there's a, a bit of a gap in the evidence, isn't there? And I think one of the challenges we find quite often as uh, clinicians and as researchers is who we think might benefit from uh, inspiratory muscle training, particularly as an adjunct, because most people will benefit from rehab. Uh, but who do we give that extra uh, intervention to? So do you have any ideas of what kind of groups of people would benefit most from the intervention? 
Right. Yeah. So first of all, I would I would like to stress that actually when we look at the evidence, the evidence is very, very comparable, actually quite identical when, when there have been also reviews published about other add-on interventions and their additional effect in that same uh, type of, of study design where you would combine an intervention with rehab and the, and the control group receives rehab without that intervention. And if you look at, for example, the effects of limb muscle resistance training added to rehab, the effects are exactly the same. So as a standalone intervention, it improves these same outcomes, of course, not exertional dyspnea, but then the effect on symptoms is mostly on, on leg fatigue instead of, instead of dyspnea, but it also improves specific mu muscle function that is trained and exercise capacity. Um, and when it's added to rehab, you see specific additional gains in muscle function, but how it translates into other outcomes is also less clear. And based on the same evidence, the, the recommendations are mostly quite unequivocal that peripheral muscle limb straining should be added to uh, pulmonary rehab, rehab, specifically, of course, for the patients that have very um, reduced limb muscle function, limb muscle dysfunction, reduced strength and, and, and endurance. Uh, and the same, I think, would count for uh, respiratory muscle strength training. So clinically, we mostly select patients for these interventions who have weak respiratory muscles, um, who report symptoms of dyspnea as a main exercise limiting factor, because we think in those patients with weakness that in quite a lot of these patients, probably the respiratory muscle weakness contributes to these symptoms. And we select also those who are motivated to get the most out of their rehab program and who think like, okay, um, yes, I'm, I'm motivated to, to also take part in other interventions that are added to my standard program. Yeah, that's a good point, actually, because rehab is so effective. Anything we add on is always going to look small in comparison, isn't it? But right. you're right, we, we all kind of embraced limb strength training but perhaps uh inspiratory muscle training has been a bit more difficult to implement across the country well across the world I should say um, yeah. um and you use it quite effectively in your clinics don't you you have inspiratory muscle, uh, people using inspiratory muscle training all the time yes we we clinically we select in in our pulmonary rehab patients so we just make a, a cut off based on a you know, pragmatical cutoff based on to select patients with more pronounced weakness and symptoms. We take patients who uh, have a maximal inspiratory mouth pressure below 70% of the predicted normal value. And uh, those we consider as candidates to receive inspiratory muscle training during their rehab program. And we typically offer it for eight to 12 weeks uh, either with threshold loading devices or with flow resistive uh, devices during the rehab program. And it's mostly added as a, as a home-based intervention. So they're not performing it during the supervised rehab sessions in our center, but they're doing it at home. And every one or two weeks, we add a, a, a supervised session uh, to the program and, and try to follow up their progress. Mm -hmm. And so they're doing it kind of alongside their, their usual rehab, uh, but it's quite independent by the sounds of it. Right, right. Yeah. And uh, in terms of progressing, their 
training what what do you usually do are you retesting and then increasing the pressures or are you just going on symptoms yeah well we um so we start uh, our training program looks and it's and it's also kind of pragmatical there are different programs available and there is no hard evidence on what the best program should look like but uh, in terms of practicality, we also choose a program of, and that is that is oftentimes apply one to two sessions per day of 30 breaths, and that amounts to about five to ten minutes of of daily uh, training um, at a resistance. So we start at a resistance of at least 30 percent with the of PI max with the threshold devices, probably not higher than 40 percent because then we limit volume response during the training too much and becomes more uncomfortable. With other types of loading that are also available, like the flow resistive loading types, we can go to higher resistances, maybe 40 to 5, 50%. Uh, so in the beginning, we base it on the, on the PIMX and the type of device that we choose to choose the initial resistance. Um, I don't think it's necessary to really repeat PIMX assessments on a weekly basis, but we, we mostly increase, let's say, 5 to 10% of the resistance every week. We keep the number of repetitions and the number of sessions um, constant. So the progression lies really in the increase of the external resistance that we apply. And we mostly base the increase on symptoms of respiratory effort after the session. And also, if we can measure it, and with the with the novel devices, with the newer technology, we can we can have data on pressure and respiratory flow and volume response during the training. So we choose actually the highest resistance that still allows almost full tidal volume during resistive breathing, so they can really train their muscles over their over let's say the full range of motion. So they do full vital capacity inspirations, starting from residual volume. And they're instructed to perform strong, fast, and deep inspiration. So generate maximum muscle power and really try to breathe in as deep as possible to really stimulate the muscle over its almost complete length. Mm -hmm. And so I think is that where kind of the, because obviously the literature is, from the review is reasonably positive, but there are an equal amount of kind of negative studies, aren't there? And I think it's probably a product of the, the study design really and I think we touching on um, the intensity I think is a really important thing so any less than 30% max we're probably not doing enough but much more than that and you're, you're going to fatigue them too soon I think so um, I don't know if you have any comments on, on on what you think should be an optimal training regime is that yeah, I, th I think uh, I think we're still uh, looking for it and I think also the, um, the quality of the studies uh, will still increase and the, the quality of the evidence will increase with the evolving technologies in this, in this area. Because I, I, I just mentioned it, that many of these new devices that are coming out, they, are, they offer the possibility to really register uh, pressure. Uh, so the external resistance and respiratory flow so in that way, we, we, get, um, we get an idea about external work and power performed during each breath. Um, and, that, and, and there are two advantages of this. First, I mean, these newer devices that are coming out, they're really linking these measurements to uh, smartphone-based applications. So you 
could provide visual feedback to patients during the training session so they can see how well they are doing during the training and that works really motivating. At the same time, it also allows us as healthcare providers, but also as researchers to have instant access to the training parameters that the patient is performing. And that will also allow us after the training program uh, to get an idea about the amount of total work performed during the training program and relate these training parameters to magnitude of improvements that are achieved by patients. And that is something that has been like, even though the intervention is already provided for 30, 40 years, in most of these uh, previous studies, this kind of information is lacking. So there's always a, there has always been a discussion about, okay, is the intervention not working or is it not provided in the most optimal way mm. maybe? And that is, I think, something that uh, will be resolved in the, in the coming years with the advance of, of new technology. And I think that offers also great opportunities for really offering this, this kind of intervention as a kind of an e-health intervention. I think that's really the future for this type of intervention within pulmonary rehab. Yeah, and I suppose as well, it, it helps measure compliance, doesn't it? Because we're never really sure that, there are, that people are actually doing it if we, if we are letting them do it at home. So um, that's another Definitely. benefit from it too. Definitely, yeah. Okay, and um, we've touched on this before about kind of risks versus benefits of of using inspiratory muscle training. I think that's probably one of the, the key things. Uh, you feel there are quite a lot low risk to implementing it, don't you? So I don't know if you wanted to discuss that. Right, that is, that is also why we, why we uh, say, okay, we, we select the patients who are motivated to optimize the effects of their rehab program because the only thing that they have to invest is additional effort and time there are no risks related to the intervention so if we if we choose the right patients and they are willing to to invest that additional effort into it we can see after a few weeks whether they improve their symptoms uh, during during exercise and so we make our selection based on that it's, it's actually indeed there are no risks related to providing the the mm. intervention and what do your patients say kind of when they have used it alongside rehab? How, how do they find uh, using these kind of devices usually? Yeah, well, of course, it's, it's always difficult to, um, to evaluate their responses when they combine it with rehabs because you don't really know where the effect is coming from. Typically, they feel better, of course. But if we use it as a standalone intervention, we really see uh, from uh, mostly when we evaluate the responses with with questionnaires focused on the most the symptom that you would expect is mostly improved by the intervention exertional dyspnea so if we if we ask them about symptoms of dyspnea either at a standardized level of exertion with a Borg scale during exercise breathing or we we evaluate their symptoms of dyspnea in daily life with the baseline transitional dyspnea index or the CRDQ, we really see that after the intervention, they report improvements in their in the level of dyspnea that they experience during uh, daily activities. And there's really a big contrast in, in comparison to the control groups that we offer typically during our studies, these, these placebo or SHEM training interventions, mm -hmm. uh, so are, who are also under the impression that they are doing 
an active intervention. Um, but the improvements in, in exertional dyspnea are clearly larger. That's the, that's the most, uh, I mean, patient-related outcome that is, and symptom that is, that is improved in response to the intervention, I think. Mm. Yeah, and it's always difficult to measure something so subjective like breathlessness, especially when uh, the control group obviously feel they're getting it too, um, because there are so many things that can influence your breathlessness. So um, do you have any suggestions or kind of favorite outcome measures for measuring breathlessness that you found uh, to be most representative? Or? Yes, I, th I think, and, and there has also been a lot of discussion about it, that it's really important to measure breathlessness at standardized levels of exertion before and after the intervention to really be able to compare uh, the effects between an intervention and a control group. So using Borg scores at standardized levels of, 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 uh, of exertion, for example, constant work rate tests, either walking uh, tests or cycling tests are, are a, a very good way to uh, evaluate uh, these symptoms. And in terms of uh, dyspnea during daily life, yeah, the CRDQ I already mentioned, uh, baseline transitional dyspnea index is a quite sensitive measure to evaluate changes in dyspnea. And the multidimensional dyspnea profile, if you want to look a little bit mm. more also into quality of dyspnea and how, how that might change after the intervention is also an interesting instrument. And it can also be focused on either a certain period in daily life, but also on a certain period during a, an exercise test. And that's also, that also makes it an interesting instrument to evaluate symptoms in response to the intervention. Yeah, and it's, uh, the MDP is uh, particularly quite new in comparison, isn't it? So we haven't seen as much as that. So it will be interesting to see uh, how these kind of interventions change quality of breathlessness as well, mm. because they present with different challenges, uh, don't they? Um, yes. And then, so in terms of kind of the future of inspiratory muscle training, we've already spoken about kind of the, the digital transformation. Is there any other areas you see kind of inspiratory muscle training kind of heading towards? Yeah, I think um, in in that regard, offering it as an as an uh, as an e health intervention, I think there might be a role in in the pulmonary rehab programs to use it as a kind of prehab intervention uh, before starting rehab uh, in patients who are maybe just discharged from the hospital following an acute exacerbation and who are waiting a few weeks before they can enter an outpatient rehab program. Uh, I think preconditioning the respiratory muscles, especially in selected patients with pronounced respiratory muscle weakness in these patients who are very breathlessness, might help them to prepare for the, the additional loads that they will have to face on their respiratory muscles once they start participating in the, in the exercise-based programs uh, mm. later. That might be um, an interesting role. And there is at, uh, so far, there is not too much data out there uh, specifically focusing on that group of, of, of patients. Yeah. Yeah. So kind of bridging the, that gap, isn't it, between hospitalization and, and starting rehab. And I think right. that's a, um, raises a good, a good point about kind of accessing rehab. We have so many people that just don't come 
to the intervention uh, to join us for a program and I wondered if if you had any thoughts on whether maybe front loading it within spiritual muscle training might um might be because it's a bit less burdensome isn't it than coming to a rehab class twice or three times right. a week um so I wonder if you had any thoughts on how that might increase uptake or if it yeah, there is there is one study who who, who looked into this uh, if, if if the intervention can increase uptake of rehab, and it's it's for sure one of the I mean especially in these patients that are very disabled by breathlessness, after an acute uh, uh, exacerbation is one of the few interventions probably that these patients will be able to tolerate at that moment. In addition to maybe very localized muscle strength training or maybe neuromuscular electrical stimulation. Um, it's one of the few things that these patients can actually do at that point. Uh, and with that, mostly also in, in these patients, the impression is that uh, mostly these patients are quite motivated to do this because they feel that the intervention is very closely linked to their breathing. And that's where they experience that most of their problems are located. Oftentimes, I find it easier to convince patients to do these breathing exercises than doing limb muscle exercises because there they feel like what's my what's the link with my breathing mm. problems whereas with the breathing muscle training they see a, a an immediate link with their breathing problems so it's quite easy to to motivate the patients uh, to do that and if we then make the right selection of patients i think um uh, this can be an interesting intervention yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. It's definitely an easier sell, isn't it? I'm going to give you something that's going to help you breathe. Um, then can you come and exercise? People don't quite make that link. Um, and I think generally patients like to receive something, don't they? Like we are still going, fighting against years of just a medical model where you're, you're sick, we give you a tablet, you feel better. And in some ways, a device kind of helps uh, in that way. You, you feel breathless, we can give you this device that will help um it's slightly obviously it's less passive than medications but it's uh, slightly more passive than kind of coming to rehab so I think it's a, a, an interesting way to start bringing people round to the idea of taking a bit more control of their health and, right. and doing more and with the with the new devices that are coming an interesting an interesting aspect especially in that in that period of their disease like during an acute access but these very weak patients once they start doing it they will rapidly also be able to see and monitor their own progress so they will have something where they see okay i'm making i'm making progress and they will also be able to see that and that's of course something that will also yeah that really works uh very motivating for them uh, mm. in that period where they feel like okay i'm i'm so breathless i'm so limited in the things i can do that they have an intervention where they can actually keep track of their of their of their progress that's that i think will be um something with the advance of the new technology that will, will be very valuable i think mm -hmm. yeah and it's quite empowering isn't it to i i did this for myself and, and now i feel less breathless and then that kind of snowballs onto okay what else can I do and that would be a, an optimal time to be like well why don't you come join us for rehab right um so it definitely promotes some some good conversations I think um and I guess w we haven't really touched on yet um, most of the literature you mentioned is in COPD so in your service would you only offer inspiratory muscle training to COPD patients or would you offer it to other uh, diseases as well I mean you mentioned heart failure earlier too 
Yeah, we are uh, at the moment we're um, offering it also to um, patients with uh, diaphragm paralysis, for example, um, which is also a nice example that actually even in, in, in absence of diaphragm function or with this mechanical disadvantage of the diaphragm, like you always also have it in very hyperinflated patients with COPD, we are able to improve respiratory muscle function with the intervention, probably by mostly working on the non-diaphragmatic muscles, the chest wall muscles, the accessory inspiratory muscles, head and neck muscles. Um, so that's an interesting model. And, and another group that we're uh, um, using it in at the moment in a more acute phase is are the patients on the ICU who are experiencing difficulties to wean from the ventilator, mm -hmm. and in those in those patients, of course, we we um, we apply it to yeah, to facilitate weaning from the from the ventilator and spontaneous breathing. The settings are different. Patients are much weaker, uh, oftentimes, yeah. uh, and the, and the training settings are a bit are a bit different. Uh, but then, actually, the 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 aim is not to facilitate exercise breathing but to facilitate the additional load that comes on once they're breathing spontaneously mm -hmm. and uh, yeah we're studying that at the moment and uh, i think these are these are the applications that we uh, moment uh, yeah. consider and would you follow kind of similar principles in terms of frequency and duration or would you just see yeah, that's on the ICU. We do one session per day. Of course, everything is done with supervision. There, mm -hmm. we do we do a more of an interval type training, like not thirty breaths, but six to eight breaths, and then do four sets of that. Um, uh, but basically, uh, with regard to choosing the optimal resistance, we also try to choose a resistance that allows them to just complete a near full inspiration from residual volume and, and, and we try to gradually and progressively increase that resistance uh, on a there mostly on a daily basis but the increments there are very very small and but but the principles I mean asking symptoms of patients looking at the response based on the external resistance you apply and of course and that's always very important and especially in this setting but also in the patients with COPD to have a period of overload, but also to provide sufficient periods of rest in between the mm -hmm. sessions so the muscles can adapt. Um, that's that's basically the, yeah, the, our principles of training that are also comparable to principles of, of course, uh, peripheral muscle uh, resistance yeah. training. Yeah, yeah. There's there's no overcomplicating it. It's still muscle. It still works in the same way. Yeah. Uh, it's just you be a bit more mindful of the fatigue element, I suppose. Um, so we've already kind of discussed that the benefits of inspiratory muscle training in terms of um, reducing breathlessness, improving uh, functional capacity, um, and that is a reasonably low risk intervention other than kind of your contraindications. We can pretty much offer it to, to anyone, but I guess the stick is certainly in the UK, the sticking point will be um, the cost implications. I think that's probably where the biggest resistance comes. So. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on on the kind of cost benefit uh, 
to... Yeah, yeah, of course. And also that's, that, that remains a bit of a problem. Not in all countries, these, these devices are reimbursed by the health insurance. Uh, and um, in the, um, during our programs, we try to, to offer the intervention with the devices that we have available in a more controlled fashion for the maintenance programs that that patients that we motivate patients to engage in you know after this in more intense period of let's say eight to 12 weeks where you um, instruct patients to do the training on a daily basis then it would probably be sufficient to do it uh, once a day the training or once every two days um, we typically use these threshold loading devices that are more affordable and once patients know how to do it and are, are motivated, they keep on doing it. But also in the, for example, in the Dutch guidelines uh, on physiotherapy and COPD, we included where it's also not reimbursed in the guidelines, we included that one of the criteria to offer it would also be that patients need to be motivated to invest at least the um, 30, 40 euros to, um, to actually um buy one of those devices to use it uh, which is a pity that it's not it's not reimbursed but mm -hmm. yeah it is what it is yeah and of course these 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 more uh these electronic devices come even at a higher cost so that will make it more difficult for patients to to purchase them on their own budget yeah yeah i suppose though as as technology improves and we get better uh, high-end devices you'd expect the kind of lower end ones to be a bit cheaper maybe and I think if you compare kind of 30 to 40 pounds for a device to how much we spend on inhalers for example a year actually it's quite low cost um, but still we find quite a lot of resistance in, in reimbursing it which I think is is a bit of a shame. Yeah, yeah. Um, there are no cost benefit analysis available in the literature so that would also be yeah something an area to look into. Interesting to study to mm. see how much have you have to invest for improving symptoms <laughs> in, a, in a to a certain degree. And I guess the the improvement in symptoms, just like with pulmonary rehab, are large and the costs are relatively low. So I guess that analysis would come out very favorably. But it's, yeah, it, it 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 would have to be done by someone, right? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yes. Well, we'll put a pin in that. Maybe maybe someone in, uh, listening can work on that for us. <laughs> okay. Um, I don't really have any other questions. I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to discuss or add. Um, I guess generally to summarize, uh, perhaps you can summarize uh, your opinion and thoughts on inspiratory muscle training, and then we can wrap up. Yeah. So I would I would think if we it, it's a it's a low risk uh, intervention um that um can be offered to patients if we select the right patients to apply it to many of these patients will uh, succeed in improving their respiratory muscle function facilitate exercise breathing and optimize their effects of the of the rehab program um, so i would really uh, encourage all the people involved in pulmonary rehab to uh, perform assessments of respiratory muscle function uh, and consider offering that uh, this uh, this interventions to patients with breathe uh, with weak breathing muscles uh, to their rehab program because um, uh, they will be able to to reap the benefits from it 
Mm -hmm. Lovely, thank you. And obviously we've identified a few areas where uh, perhaps we need a little bit more information and, and certainly the future of inspiratory muscle training. So maybe we'll see more and more of it uh, to come. So uh, thank you very much for your time, uh, Daniel, and also thank you uh, to the ATS Pommy Rehab Assembly for allowing us to record this podcast today. And I'd also like to thank uh, the audience for listening. And we'd love to hear your thoughts as well. If you want to get involved in the discussion, uh, you can find us on Twitter. So thank you. Thanks for the invitation. <laughs>